Hello listeners, this is Blake Sleet, and I am welcoming you to episode 136 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast going through the Criterion Collection in chronological order of original release. And we're going to be talking about uh, Brian De Palma's sisters, me and two guests. So i got two different segments coming up here, and I'll be getting into that film in just a minute. But I thought before I do that, I will just kind of give a little bit of a catch-up since it's been a couple months since I posted a, a new episode of this podcast. And uh, that was not a scheduled break, and there was no particular reason or hardship that I went through that uh, caused the delay, just a number of different factors. Some of it was the busyness of life outside of podcasting, uh, with my job, with family, uh, with the emergence of springtime and just wanting to get outside and enjoy uh, these nice months of the year here in Michigan. Um, Also, just lining up guests and getting everything all set. Uh, to record and you know taking the time to watch and rewatch the movies and and work out the details um, so yeah those are just some of the logistics behind the scenes but I did also want to just talk a little bit about where I'm at with the podcast we are now late in 1972 uh, sisters was released in November of that year uh, I don't think it hit wider distribution until the following spring but uh, it was a November 1972 release, or at least in one, one cut of it, maybe, I don't know exactly how many stages the film went through. But in any case, um, I've only got a few more episodes left, and I'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the episode. But, but we will be done in the foreseeable future, especially if I can get my act together and start getting these recordings done a little bit more frequently. Uh, Criterion Reflections has never been particularly beholden to a schedule. Uh, sometimes I get these bursts and I'll put out you know, two or three episodes in the course of just a few weeks. Sometimes I've taken months and sometimes I've intentionally taken time off. Uh, that wasn't the case most recently, but I am looking at uh, kind of where am I going with this. I've been getting more involved with a local film society here in Grand Rapids, which takes up a lot of my movie watching and free time uh, that I kind of dedicate to this hobby. And so that's definitely made the podcast a little bit less of a priority as I'm enjoying uh, real life community and seeing movies on the big screen uh, that often have the criterion touch uh, or branding even. Um, I've kind of talked a little bit about that on some of my social media posts. But uh, in any case, uh, I do want to thank people for the feedback, for listening, for letting me know that they've missed hearing our episodes come out as frequently as maybe they have in the past. Uh, And definitely, I'm still committed to doing this, although it may take a while. And so, as I get to the end of 1972, maybe I'll have more thoughts on the future directions. I don't know that I'm going to be as meticulous about covering every single Criterion-affiliated title. In fact, I've already started skipping some of the Criterion Channel exclusive offerings, even though I do have one episode coming up that was based on Criterion Channel only titles. Um, But yeah, maybe I'll even move beyond the the chronological scheme. Maybe I'll just do short TikToks in the chronological order and do other things with this podcast here. So a lot's up in the air. I definitely welcome any feedback or suggestions that people have about what they would like to see me do. Um, I've even got a few other ideas that are sort of still percolating before I get into any more disclosures or announcements or pseudo-announcements of that sort. All right, so I've rambled on long enough here. Let's go ahead and get into Brian De Palma's sisters. But again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate 
the support and interest that people have in uh, considering my thoughts and reactions to these great films. I am here now with Robert Baum. He's a first-time guest on this uh, podcast. Uh, he and I have gotten to know each other a little bit through some online conversation. Uh, Robert, you actually contacted me. I, it's been a while, maybe even more than a year ago, about uh, your interest in getting on this podcast, and I really do appreciate it. I'm sorry that it's taken us this long to get to one of the titles that you signed up for. Better late than never. <laughs> That's right. Well, here we are. Uh, about to talk about Brian De Palma's Sisters from 1972. This is a film that kind of caught your attention on my little spreadsheet there. And I'm just going to give you a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners since it's your first time joining me on Criterion Reflections. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about your impressions of this film and let the conversation flow from there. So take it away. Okay, I'll hem it in as best I can. I'm Robert (laughs) Baum, uh, but I've written for a website called... uh, letterboxd.com. I'm not sure if you or any of your co- online colleagues or in real life colleagues know of the site. Uh, do you? Oh Dave? yeah, sure. Okay. I, I've got an account. It's just David Blakesley and I should okay. probably find you there and we should connect on Letterboxd. Yeah. Uh, well, well, actually you, you won't find me under my name. I okay. uh, have utilized uh, a uh, name crib from a favorite film of mine. Uh, it's um, Harry Lime. It's spelled with two E's as opposed to a Y. Harry Lime, uh, the character played by Orson Welles in The Third Man, and uh, I have about 80 reviews uh, uh, that I've authored at at the site, and uh, I'm not sure if any of them qualify for even possibility of being among the criterion titles of future one day, but... uh, um, I've had a film interest for many a year. I reviewed films from my high school newspaper, my college newspaper. I'm an alum of Goucher College, and uh, I've long had an interest in cinema, probably since uh, 1977, when in a uh, Harrisburg suburb uh, long ago, uh, yours truly first caught Star Wars, and that sort of has ignited my uh, film love ever since. Well, it sounds like you and I are from a similar generation because I also saw Star Wars and its opening run there back in 77. And it was, for me as well, a life-changing experience. Uh, you know, I don't follow the franchise and all the spinoffs as closely as I once did, but uh, certainly caught my attention and uh, just really was an overwhelming experience if you just compare it to what else was happening in theaters at the time. So, Have you been a lifelong resident of Michigan? I noticed in your bio that mm-hmm. it uh, mentioned. So were you... Uh, Anywhere near near Mackinac Island, when I'm sure that Christopher Reeve probably was uh, making news for appearing in the film somewhere in time. Um, I lived more in the Grand Rapids area, which is on okay. the southwest side of the state. Um, I've been to Mackinac many times, and I have lived elsewhere. Uh, longtime listeners of this show know that I've spent time in California. Lived Small in- world, I did too. Yeah, yeah, I was in the Bay Area. That's where I actually graduated from high school, and uh, kind of spent my formative teenage years there. I did see Star Wars. I believe, yeah, I think it was out in California, actually. You're right, as, as I as I put the pieces together. But, yeah, California and Michigan have been my main kind of uh, places, and Michigan's been my residence since 1988. So I'm definitely a Michigander, but with a pretty strong California influence, just to get into my personal bio a little well, bit. Well, I'm hoping there. to one yeah. day go back to California if the cost of living is uh, such that can be accommodated. 
Yeah, maybe in some parts of the state, but I my understanding is it's a pretty expensive place to live these days. Well, I was living in Lafayette, which is the Bay Area. Oh, Lafayette. Well, I went. I was living in Walnut Creek for a while, so yeah, we were practically neighbors. I love having a chance. Uh, a few times I went to the city, finding a few uh, art houses. I'm not sure. I oh, guess yeah. the Alamo Draft House was not around in your heyday there, but uh, no. Nope. Uh, what about the Roxy or the? Oh um, yeah. The Roxy, uh, the UC Castro. Theater in Berkeley, the Castro. Sure, I've been to a lot of those theaters. In fact, that's where I lot, a lot of my uh, midnight movie repertoire and, and just kind of the old uh, kind of retrospective stuff. Uh, you know, saw a lot of, lot of cool films uh, in those kind of art house type theaters back then. Yep. Well, okay. Well, well, anything else you want to tell us about yourself, Robert? I mean, that's a pretty good intro and you've got a letterbox account. I will put a link in the show notes so people can uh, find you there. Maybe give you some likes and just uh, kind of connect with you. As, and I certainly will myself once we're uh, done with this recording. All right. I, I've uh, also, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you have any colleagues either in real life or online in the Boston area, but I've actually guested a number of times on a uh, now defunct show on 1030 hosted by a veteran uh, a Bostonian named Jordan Rich. Uh, uh, okay. Do you? Okay. No, I, I don't know Jordan Rich. I do have some Boston acquaintances, uh, Matthew Gasteyer and Travis Trudell. They do a show called The Complete. I've been a guest with them a few times, and Matt and Travis have both been on my show. And uh, yeah, they are definitely my Boston connection. And then uh, what's their arena of interest as far as film, if I may ask? Uh, well, they are. Well, their show, The Complete, is actually a, kind of a a pretty in depth survey of the careers of certain directors. They started with Stanley Kubrick. They've done Elaine May, uh, Satoshi Kohn, Krzysztof Kieślowski, and now they're currently doing a series on um, Agnes Varda. So they're very much into the kind of the higher art house type of cinema. Would it be improper to ask for an intro to them one day? I mean, I'm not trying I, to use no, this to fine. pimp myself. But. No, no, this is this is a, this is what we call social networking, right? To get to know each other and connect. So yeah, I will definitely uh, give give them a little uh, heads up there. And uh, Many thanks, Dave. Definitely... Uh, recommend that you check out the complete it's just called the complete podcast uh it's is it, it spelled search. complete uh, yeah. without any kind of fancy uh, yep. wordplay it's, it's okay. the complete and like right now the season they're in is called the complete adnas varda so uh yeah i'll definitely put a link in the show notes to them because they're great guys they've got a an excellent thing going and uh, and what they do is they, they review every single film that the director has made, whether that's a short subject, a full length feature, whatever. So, so I uh, guess Wells yeah. and Peter Weir are kind of uh, virtually within uh, shooting distance of uh, tonight. It, well, sure. I, yeah, we take the conversation wherever it goes. So uh, because let's I, go I ahead. had the impression it was alphabetical, but I didn't mean to. Do that, but, uh, <laughs> no, no, nothing in alphabetical. It's just uh, you know, there, there's connections of of more obvious and more subtle. But let's go ahead and transition over to Brian De Palma's film Sisters. Brian De Palma released this film in 1972. It wasn't his debut feature, but it was a film that kind of launched him to that next level um tell me about your your uh, your regard for brian de palma as a director and uh you know we'll just kind of get into sisters and take it from there well brian de palma i think i first heard the name probably in 1981 with the release of his film called blowout not that i had the slightest idea about what it was about but it also kind of came and went uh, and so i really had little knowledge and i guess 
I grew up thinking an R-rated film was kind of taboo territory, not that I never saw one, but the very first time I ever saw a Brian De Palma film would have probably been 1987's The Untouchables, mm-hmm. which branched him out into a kind of a bigger fame than his, than his hit-making days of Carrie. Yeah, I think I did see Carrie way back when, but it, that's the only time I've ever watched it, so my memories and my grasp of the film are pretty vague. I'll, I'll just kind of make an allusion to the fact that I may not have had my full critical capacities at the time. So, you know, but that was, I think it was my first exposure. And then uh, was it the Phantom of Paradise? I think that was another one that I took in as a midnight movie. Again, somewhat under the influence. So of hazy memories, let's just say that. But, um, you know, Brian... It seems a lot of his material is kind of prime... I'm hesitant to use the word fodder because I guess that seems to be kind of like a uh, uh, lowest uh, common denominator terminology. But uh, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I often kind of wondered because usually I associated Brian De Palma with Hitchcock and I associate Hitchcock with violence. And so I presume from my limited knowledge of um, certain unique cinema terminology and my father being Jewish loved to use certain words. I think that he might, right. I think he might've used the word schlock or um, uh, such. Um, well, you know, De Palma, he definitely has had, uh, I've seen it in different reviews, uh, the word roller coaster career, you know, some, some mm-hmm. great highs, uh, some, some real, you know, lasting crowning achievements. And then, Schlock, as you said. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, my fa- I didn't mention my father also knew of the name De Palma, not through his cinematic forays, but because his father was a doctor of note. Uh, hmm. And I think he taught at Jefferson, which where my father for a time also uh, was on the faculty. And uh, oh, ironically, uh, not that uh, it would have made any difference, but I found that he actually, uh, the younger De Palma had actually attended a private school that my father was once contemplating sending me hmm. to. So you've actually, through some relatives, through your father, not necessarily crossed paths, but there, there's some some overlaps or there's some connections there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, never mm-hmm. any chance of meeting anyone, unfortunately. But I guess it kind of is sort of neat to know yeah. that paths cross in some fashion, even if there was never. Yeah, traveling in the same circles. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, well let's just let's get into a little bit of De Palma just to sort of set some context here. Um, as I said, Sisters was not his first film, and as I, I and in the show notes uh, for this episode, there are some reviews from 1973, which uh, of course this is a release film that was released in November of 1972, but it seems like it didn't make broad circulation until '73 because the reviews I could find from like Roger Ebert. The Village Voice, uh, uh, Pittsburgh and Boston newspapers, which again are all linked in the show notes, all were like from May of 1973. So, do you have any of Pauline Kale's reviews? Because I know that she yep. was regarded, uh, De Palma regarded him as as uh, his biggest champion or one of them. And I know mm-hmm. Roger Ebert has often spoken. Yeah, about yeah. Him, or uh, well, the, this film definitely got some some good reviews, and I know Pauline Kale um, was definitely. Uh, a, a significant uh, supporter of, of his early efforts. I can't, her, her reviews are not as accessible online unless you have a subscription to the New Yorker, which I have had in the past, but I don't currently. And so I can't really link it up to a lot of her stuff. I get Go ahead. It. But, but she, um, you know, but De Palma was recognized as an emerging talent. In fact, I think one of the reviews, I think it was from uh, Pittsburgh, um, mentioned him and Martin Scorsese in the same breath and saying, these are guys who should be getting um, 
recognized by Hollywood and get out of the little kind of, you know, B movie, you know, low budget uh, operations that they had been kind of slotted into uh, because they recognized their talent. I know that Scorsese and De Palma were sort of their own unique enclave mm-hmm. because I recall a handful of years ago on Conan O'Brien when Scorsese was a guest, he was talking about how back when he was up and coming in the game, uh, I think when he was about to cut himself free of work with uh, Roger Corman because he worked as an editor, I think, uh, in the Corman New World and also the likes of, um, uh, I guess, the USC community, mm-hmm. even if they never been to film school in the area, like Steven Spielberg, included Lucas and Coppola, yep, yep. And, uh, and, and they all each had a role in um, kind of giving advice. And I believe it was De Palma, even though this is slightly obtuse, who actually... Uh, suggested or urged Lucas to do the opening scroll for Star Wars hmm. as a way of uh, um, telling the story. That's a mistaken. cool little anecdote there. And yeah, definitely De Palma was part of that little clique, you know, of kind of up and coming filmmakers. I don't think he was originally from Southern California, but he found his way out there and was definitely kind of one of the cool kids. And that's, that's, you know, part of, I think his, his, um, his access to the big time. And it's also, I think part of what's created a bit of a, a cult following. I think De Palma is one of those directors who has very loyal aficionados who, who really appreciate his work. And I will just put my cards on the table. I'm not really part of that camp. I mean, I've, like I say, I've seen different De Palma movies over the years, mentioned a few already, have seen The Untouchables. I saw Mission to Mars. <laughs> um, there's others, um, I, yeah, Scarface. But I've never really made a study of him as like a serious artistic director on an auteur. And I feel like, you know, that's probably something I'll be doing a little bit of. I mean, he does have two other films that have been released on disc by Criterion, uh, Blowout, which I think is pretty much regarded as his kind of masterpiece, like his maybe... Well, it's held in high regard by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, too. well, and by the kind of what you might say the critical establishment. I think that that's the one film that mm-hmm. they've embraced uh, as kind of his sup- superior achievement. Some people will like Scarface. Some people will like Carrie. Some people will like Dress to Kill or Body Double or or some of those others that uh, have kind of made a lasting impression. I actually find uh, Wise Guys to be something of a guilty okay, pleasure. Sure, I'm yeah. not sure if that's uh, known to you or your uh, colleagues. I, I know it by title, but I haven't never seen it. But I think it's yeah, a comedy, uh-huh, believe sure. it or not, with Joe Piscopo yeah. and Dan DeVito. Yeah, I, and I think that's the thing. He's he's just done a lot of different stuff, and so chances are there's probably going to be something within that variety that he's created that he's directed that's going to hit the sweet spot. But there's a lot of stuff that uh, you know has to be regarded as as a failure or a miscue or or just a a, a bungled effort and so he's not necessarily going to go down as one of the you know all-time greats you know across the board but like but i do recognize he's got some folks in his corner who really like to champion the cause and again i've, I've got a number of links in the show notes that kind of give good overviews of his career there's there's some rankings of best to worst uh all of that did you see the documentary on him simply titled the palma no. because he gives an interesting take on i think that he didn't 
truly love it because he realized, I guess the inevitable is you have a hit. The, the studios basically want you to kind of like helm their next big one. And after it was uh, Carrie that he was put at the helm of the Fury, mm-hmm. which I guess to him uh, dealing with big movie stars, that could be a bit of a headache. But he did speak highly of the score by John Williams. And of course, who wouldn't want to have John Williams uh, on board scoring their film? And he also ho- spoke highly of a film he did called... Um, uh, Raising Cain, where I gather that was pretty pretty much a showcase for John Lithgow to essentially uh, tick off all his, uh, if you will, crazy boxes. Hmm. Okay. Well, well, speaking of crazy boxes, why don't we get into Sisters and just talk about that a little sure. bit, since okay. that's kind of the main subject here. Uh, that's, a, that's been a good overview of De Palma's career, and I, I think I may follow up on some of that with my next guest. There will be two guests on this segment. Uh, Richard Doyle will be joining me after my conversation with Robert is wrapped up. But uh, tell me about your uh, your familiarity with Sisters. Uh, when did you see this, and where does this one rank as far as you know, your your favorites or least favorites among the Palma's work? Well, I actually saw it many years ago. I think I had this habit of whenever there was some big release coming out by a director of note, I would usually uh, hit the video store and, uh, and catch a few titles. Uh, maybe I might have even seen it just before Casualties of War, which I don't think I saw. But uh, anyway, um, uh, I think it was also because uh, Siskel and Ebert were doing a show back when they ventured into syndication on cult films, and it was a film that they uh, spoke highly of, and I guess that's probably what prompted me to uh, get a look at it. It might have also been prompted by a book called The De Palma Cut mm-hmm. by an author named Lauren Buzero, I think was his name. I have the book somewhere in storage okay. where basically it uh, handles all the big-name films. I mean, Carrie, uh, Dress to Kill, Obsession, and films like Get to Know Your Rabbit and Hi, Mom, the stuff that he did right, very early in his right. career. But uh, this film, when I look at it, I, I Brian De Palma, I guess you could say that some people would say that he's a guy who, to him, taboos mean nothing and that bring them on. I mean, you can, of course, now with the hindsight of, well maybe better judgment among other things. I mean, uh, I gather nowadays, I'm wondering what kind of studio would, would give the okay to a film which opens with someone who um, walks in on someone pretending to be blind. Of course, you'd probably <laughs> raise a uh, ruckus mm-hmm. with the people who think, oh, this is mocking the handicap. Right. And uh, the idea of, you know, it's not promoting a sound moral thing about a guy who just meets someone on a game show and uh, mere hours later they're in the sack. But uh, it, it plays to the taboos, and I guess I don't think I quite realize there's actually quite a bit that's humorous to it. I mean, the way the uh, contestants answer is what I call the boing sound, which obviously <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, uh, I mean, that, that seems to be more a thing for comedic effect. And even when you see uh, William Finley, when he takes a spill in the apartment, which I gather in some way is referenced in Body Double when Deborah Shelton is trying to escape her killer and she winds up tripping over the bed Mm -hmm. uh, just before she winds up um, uh, meeting her uh, demise. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but of course, I'm wondering how much uh, of what I see in um, the film, primarily Margot Kidder's dual characters, might have been influenced by her uh, rather well-known, uh, sadly, um, episodes of regard to her 
uh, mental well-being. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I mean, I'm sure that I'm not going to say that this role was tailor-made for her. But when I heard about some of the things that happened in her life, like she once had an abortion, I think using Lysol, I think oh. uh, in the days before it was legal. And when you think about all the the sinister turn that uh, that whole institution is, it might as well have been out of some. 30s mad science uh, movie yeah. uh, like uh, M or um, the hands of Orlac. Yeah. But, uh, no, that's, that's pretty dark uh, and pretty tragic. And I, I mean, I knew that Margot Kidder had kind of a pretty difficult later stage of life. I think she, she died fairly young and had had a, a lot of, in, you know, mental health issues. But it exploded onto the yeah. front page in 1996 right. when she had that breakdown mm-hmm. where she sought to retrieve some files for her autobiography that she was working on, and she had a bit of a break from reality. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. thought her ex-husband had hired a CIA hit team and that they had somehow sabotaged her computer, and that's when she wound up uh, walking from, I think, Los Angeles International Airport. I don't know how that happens to to the backyard. I think of Rosie Schuster, who was a friend of her, or she was trying to find her, who was a writer on Saturday Night Live. Because I think in the seventies, Kidder kind of cultivate. She actually also cultivated a friendship with the likes of De Palma mm-hmm. and co-star Jennifer Salt in the early seventies. Yeah. And I think. Uh, she dated Spielberg and kind of got to know that crew. And I think that she kind of sort of became not trying to speak ill of her, but a party girl mm-hmm. like uh, Carrie Fisher mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and often kind of not really giving much thought to, I mean, because she seemed to kind of talk more about the idea of a career as a way of funding a way of, of having fun as opposed to any of the intricacies or uh, no or whatever that people kind of feel a need to, emphasize when they're playing a role as opposed to just following the script like a blueprint. Right. Well, she, she was obviously a very beautiful woman and, and uh, you know, had, had a bit of a career prior to Sisters, but I think Sisters did kind of elevate her as the film became known yeah. and embraced. But I, I wasn't, I'm not clear as to whether some of her mental health problems were as, as known or obvious. Oh, no, I wasn't trying to say it was. No, no, I'm but I'm saying, saying well, well, I'm just asking, when, when she was younger, I mean, there's a clip on the, on the Sisters Blu-ray of her on the Dick Cavett show where she's she's giving an interview and and it's kind of humorous but she's a little bit spacey you you wonder if she may be under the influence a bit there um and it was the early 70s i mean i think that in fact that interview dick cavett was prior to sisters but um when you talk about some of her you know the issues and the role that that you know what she was cast into i will say this you know, and we're kind of jumping ahead into the story before you're really given much setup. But but when she goes into that dissociative mode uh, as as a killer, or or when she goes limp towards the end there, when she's being kind of assaulted by her 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 lover, her controller there. I mean, she she's very convincing as a woman who's kind of just lost it and has just kind of gone over the edge and into some dark territory. Even though much of the time she's demure and innocent and captivating and he she uses her her facial expressions she has that kind of uh, vulnerable childlike innocence look to her which you know obviously is an asset in terms of her of her appearance and and her appeal as as a as a young actress and she she understood and in some small way this film was sort of Vaguely on my mind uh, when um, Eva, even though it kind of treads in similar territory, and maybe it's just coincidental that they're deal with identical twins. I think somewhere on my mind, Sisters was on it when uh, the David Cronenberg film Dead Ringers came mm. out. 
Interesting. Yeah, yeah. In terms of that, that doubling effect. And it also had two, uh, and it also had twins in the form yeah. of not only uh, Jeremy Irons playing both uh, uh, twins, but also a uh, future Law and Order starlet Jill Hennessy and her sister Jacques hmm. playing uh, two of the uh, ladies who uh, um, the brothers meet prior to their trying to help out Genevieve Bougeau, who herself is a veteran of uh, De Palma via his film Obsession, which I know is not sisters, right. but. Uh, uh, but when you think of, well, uh, when I think of some of the actors in it, uh, I think that I first saw Dolph Sweet on Gimme a Break without realizing that he had a past. And, you know, I guess everyone has their dues paying. And I guess some actors look upon working on a low budget film as just a way of trying to keep the craft alive. And it isn't so much just just the money, but just the enjoyment of the mm-hmm. craft. And uh, and for a time, I actually got him and Charles Durning confused for a while. Not in the film. Okay. Though, but, uh, I, want to, I want to follow that point about the, the love of film and the craft, because that is clearly something that I think, even in his less successful films, De Palma's uh, appreciation and even reverence for the, the cinematic media really comes through. He, he loves... The, you know, the art and the technique and, and the, well, I think anyone who uses a diopter is someone who obviously yeah. they're, I mean, that they love all the toys available, mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you will, and making a exactly, film and not yeah. just all the CGI and all the uh, fancy guns. Well, I mean, he, he did get into that. Like mission to Mars is a good example of him sort of trying his and hand. He didn't speak very well, highly of course of not, that. but, but he was brought in to make a big budget science fiction action adventure epic. And that's what he came up with, you know? So, so there are some, genres where his his style and his his uh you know kind of homage to to past filmmakers is much more successful so when he's kind of looking back at the films of hitchcock or film noir or things of that sort that's kind of in his wheelhouse he tries trying other things he gets out of that sort of comfort zone if you will challenging himself but also uh it's i don't know how much of uh, of the characters are autobiographical, but I'm presuming you might have read that he grew up in a family that was not exactly the most cheeriest, even though his father was a mm-hmm. doctor, which some people would say, oh, that's that's a prime thing of a, of a good family there. They got money oh, and that sure. his father was cheating on him. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, he took to kind of uh, trying to catch his father in the act, which I think he has said played a significant role in uh, Keith Gordon's character in um, – uh, dressed to kill, mm-hmm. and I guess to some extent, uh, even Jennifer Salt in, uh, in well, Sister, yeah, I, I mean, he, he's definitely grew up in an affluent and a financially comfortable home and lifestyle, but that doesn't guarantee happiness by any means. Well, no, I wasn't mean to say it was, but I guess you think that it mirroring or vice versa. The, I mean, the uh, art imitating yeah. life, imi- art imitating. Yeah, well, exactly. Life, he, he's he's experienced betrayal and disappointment, and you know, kind of crushing rejection and all of that by the people closest to him, and, and, and many of his films kind of center on those themes that that the truth of the matter is being concealed and hidden and actively suppressed by people who ought to know better. And he's trying to bring the truth to the surface. You could even say that that's one of the themes here in Sisters. You know, uh, the Jennifer Salt well, character. He doesn't seem to give a. He, right. he doesn't seem to give a good name to medicine. In the film. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So again, some of his life experience, um, psychiatric care, medical, you know, medical care, uh, the ethics of. You know the the Hippocratic oath and taking you know taking a proper approach towards 
patients who are, you know, afflicted with some kind of disease or other kind of misfortune, you know, there, there's definitely an anger there at, at, at but there's also the split identity, yeah, yeah, if you will, yeah. in a different fashion in Dress to Kill with uh, Michael Caine's character who, on a slightly obtuse, um, not going to take it in a completely, totally opposite direction, but in uh, I read somewhere that De Palma actually was interested in casting Sean Connery in that role, and he was interested in casting uh, his, his pal, filmmaker, uh, Paul Mazursky in the <laughs> role of the uh, cop played by Dennis Franz, another mainstay in uh, in De Palma films, and that role in Dress to Kill fits him like a glove. Interesting. As yeah. is the as is the Hitchcock, as is the De Palma homage of him as the low budget director in uh, dressed in a body double. All right. Well, excellent. Well, let's get back to Sisters. Okay. So let me give you a little okay. plot synopsis here. Okay. So this is a story about a a well, a pair of Siamese twins uh, who have been separated, and there's been sort of a traumatic effect, you know, that's that's been experienced after they've grown up to full adulthood together. Uh, the, the two sisters kind of have a different, you know, slightly different personalities. Uh, one is more cheerful, one is more sullen. Uh, and, you know, there's also the, the matter of who's going to be the caretaker um, after this operation has taken place. And you, you talked about the opening, the satirical bit where De Palma is kind of skewering TV, uh, entertainment, game shows, and just kind of the the gullible public appetite for kind of tawdry and the so, spectacle. Particularly right? the social mores exactly, of the time. Right? This, this peeping Tom thing where the guy's sort of set up for a good bit of a candid camera. Like, is he going to continue ogling this blind girl as she And there's no shortage right? of those types and the Palma films. Well, right. Particularly, and, and we yeah. see with our own reality TV these days, as well as so much internet culture, Sadly. it's just exploded into, you know, very broad <laughs> mainstream uh, popular tastes. Uh, but, and as you've already, can you know, uh, said that the, these two characters who are sort of set up on the set for this game show do end up uh, cultivating a relationship. But in the process, uh, he gets murdered uh, quite brutally and quite unexpectedly. And it is a it is a shocking kind of horror movie moment, uh, very strongly cued by Bernard Herrmann's soundtrack, which is pretty... It was actually among his final yeah, efforts. Yeah, well, he, he apparently mistaken. was in kind of a retirement, but was impressed enough with this screenplay that was uh, when De Palma was playing, when they were doing the editing and putting the film together, uh, they were just playing Bernard Herrmann music just to sort of set the tone and atmosphere. And they said, what? hey, why not just get him to do the actual score? And uh, he kind of came out of his half retirement and said, sure, I'll do it. And like you say, yeah, this may have been one of the final things he ever worked on. But I think it really is is incredibly effective in, in setting the mood. It is almost programmatic because you can just tell the tension rises once that music kicks in. But it's it's a it's an excellent pairing of sound and image. And speaking of Bernard's, I was actually I'm sure I probably realized it, but I was I was shocked to realize. I guess I must have remembered Bernard Hughes being among the yes. cast. I mean, that's not exactly a name I associate with horror. <laughs> no, he's I mean, a genteel I playing with benevolent guys. I mean, even though there was the Lost Boys, which again is nothing to right. But but I mean, I think he he lent some of that gravity and that kind of you know he he kind of brought the temperature down a little bit there. 
as far as yeah. not being too overheated or, or uh, you know, uh, you know, sensationalistic. And, and he was a familiar face to, to many viewers as well. He maybe lent a little bit of respectability and all of that. Um, yeah. But William Finley almost looks like if he were around <laughs> the 30s, he would, yeah. I, I guess you would have think that he could have played like uh, – that the studios could have like had him as a replacement for Peter. Lord. Oh yeah. He, he has definitely that has kind that of kind of eerie sort of eerie you know, bugged out eyes, especially when he's filmed with that kind of fish eye lens and all that. Uh, and he just has that strangeness, that, that kind of odd demeanor that uh, kind of, you know, you, 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 the first time you set eyes on him is when he's in the audience of the TV show, the camera just lingers on him for a moment. And you realize there's something strange about that guy. And he certainly goes on to play a very pivotal role as the, movie kind of takes its turn into the creepier side well that's another interesting thing that comes to mind now of course the nature of the show obviously i'm guessing the audience pretty much knows what they're in for but maybe it's clutching at straws to say wouldn't you say that being in the audience of a uh, game show is maybe not voyeuristic but i guess essentially an anything goes kind of show like peeping toms obviously means that it is going to be a rather a bit of a racy uh, endeavor. Well, sure, and you're going to be gawking at the people who are doing, you know, you know, naughty things. I mean, that's that's part of the appeal and the entertainment. There is kind of how far will this go? It is it is extremely voyeuristic, and and really that whole uh, sensibility is is a very critical part of of the film because De Palma is is definitely bringing us into that kind of you know peeping tom uh, you know uh, aspect i mean that's what happens with with the jennifer salt character she's in the apartment across the way when the murder takes place she sees the victim reaching his hand up in the window streaking it with blood she she sees what she sees but when she wants to uh, go to the authorities and say hey something terrible has happened her own reputation catches up with her because she's written some local journalism exposés that have made the cops upset with her. She's almost the she's almost the Geraldo, or maybe right, Geraldo, so, so or maybe <laughs> Jimmy Breslin of the uh, neighborhood beat. Yeah, well, yeah, and and they don't take her seriously. They think that she's just yeah. setting them up to look bad, because, right? Yes. Because she's already kind of burned them once, and so they're not going to take her seriously. And and uh, that becomes a little bit of a, a another bit of social commentary. She's she's the young woman who's not being taken seriously because yeah. she is a young woman, and the cops and the traditional patriarchal power structures just kind of want to brush her off yeah would you say in some way there's some some obtuse reference of the kitty genovese thing i'm not sure if you recall that was a woman who i think was screaming for help and and i guess there were witnesses and they did nothing i think it actually happened in new york Mm. but uh in regard to jennifer salt's character when you mentioning the columns i guess seen in the the diopter shot where essentially it goes from one story to another and a, a different perspective of the angle on uh, the apartment where I think Philippe is the guy who gets killed. Uh, that um, uh, in some ways, particularly later when you see all the medical stuff, it almost seems the diopter reminds me of. I remember when I would accompany my father to his uh, office at uh, the Penn State Medical School that they would have these devices. I guess it's a light box where you just turn on a light and you put an X-ray on here, X-ray on there. In some ways, when you see the various light boxes together, that kind of came to mind when I thought of the diopter shots. Hmm. And I think later in the film, and maybe I'm clutching at straws with this. I mean, I'm not (laughs) trying to sound highfalutin. Right. uh, 
Well, it is a, it is a really striking effect, and and it, it's brilliantly executed. I will say, you know that that you know the the choreography and and that this is not just kind of an exercise of flashy technique. It's very critical to the storytelling because you're seeing two different sets of events happening at the same time, but the, but the timing itself is is really significant because it it shows you kind of how close the murder was to being detected and and just so many different things that happen within it and it's it's a very unique type of effect not the first time it had ever been done but uh de palma really pulled that off uh, on different occasions throughout the film right well i know that well i know that he cited i think rear window mm-hmm, i think mm-hmm. vertigo to an extent mm-hmm. and i forgot well i know that the basis of it was some uh cover story in life magazine about two separated Siamese twins. And yep, of course yep. that probably you could look up upon the history of Chang and Eng, the very first actual Siamese mm-hmm, Siamese twins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a kind of a recap of the history of, of this kind of conjoined twins as a phenomena. There's a bit of a, you know, of an homage to Todd Browning's freaks, you know, with, with the kind of yeah, others, other, you know, people with uh, different types of uh, abnormalities in their, in their mm-hmm. body whether by by birth or other accidents or or just kind of genetic uh, or other types of conditions so you you definitely have a lot that's tossed into this film and there's just many different angles um you know at the same time it is kind of a, a schlocky low budget thriller with some kind of cheesy humor some kind of grim uh sensational type of exploitation stuff yeah well i can't help but think that some of the violence now uh i guess as is evident when i've seen a number of films from the 80s and 70s in revival screenings that i can't help but imagine that when finley slips on the um uh, blood that the audience would erupt in laughter. Oh yeah, there are definitely some, I, I, there are many moments where but it's kind of squeamish inducing. Well, I guess for because- sure. Yeah. Well, and and I think and I think for for audiences that were not used to it, uh, there was either a lot of nervous laughter because it was just like so ridiculous or so outrageous or, or so shock. unsettling, right? Or repulsive. I, and I think some of those early reviews that I was talking about earlier did mention that this was pretty strong stuff. Um, that maybe the reviewers themselves were not quite prepared to, to face. I think audiences today would probably not have that same kind of revulsion unless, you know, they're just not the type of folks who like to watch these movies. But I, I do want to say also that watching this film by myself at home for the first time you know, on Blu-ray uh, was probably a very different experience than seeing it in a theater. And I think this would be a film that would have a, a lot more of that instant, you know, uh, kind of enlivening by seeing it with an audience, whether that's people who've never seen it before or people who see it and enjoy this type of film and kind of want to just have that experience together. Or even in a film class, because, uh, oh, sure, sure, yeah. because, because I recall, uh, one thing I loved about a film class I took in college, I took a few of them was not so much, Hey, I'm seeing a movie, but in retrospect, it's the idea of seeing a film amidst others, which film is a community experience, which obviously you don't get when you mm-hmm. go to whatever the store is of your uh, rental stories of your choice or your red box of your choice to right. uh, take right. out a few titles and uh, watch them over a weekend. Yeah. Well, my, my, like I say, my first exposure to this particular film was watching it in preparation for this podcast. I've watched it probably three times altogether and different portions of it, you know, 
beyond that as well. So, yeah, I've definitely found my way into this film. Like I said, the first time through, I was like, okay, I can sort of get it, you know, but but I think it's grown on me as I've kind of reflected on it. And, and I think your observation about seeing it as part of a film class is also pretty interesting because there is a lot of filmic technical stuff to to respectfully appreciate enjoy and to analyze in this film um our time is running out so i want to kind of give you the last few minutes just to kind of wrap up any other thoughts or or uh, tangents ideas or observations about sisters that you want to bring uh into the conversation well i guess uh maybe i i guess i should realize that you know this is a film that effects work was mm-hmm, kind of primitive mm-hmm. for the time obviously no cgi and and blood was not exactly the thing where they kind of developed a uh, a uh, the most authentic looking uh, gore effects. I mean, uh, Tom Savini. I'm I'm not sure if he was around. I'm not sure what it. I think his first effort was Friday the Thirteenth. But you you kind of wonder what would have been like if uh, maybe I don't think Dick Smith did the makeup, but it does have a crude fashion. But I think that all films uh, pretty much pre CGI. They you know, obviously you know there's a certain cut and paste approach and i'm sure a lot of people would think oh that's not orderly but it kind of adds to dare i say the um whole fun of it i mean there's a certain oh, yeah. weirdness Absolutely. to it i right. mean mm-hmm. it's i mean obviously this i mean uh even though De palma was working with a budget that that for the day, this obviously was not a film where they'd be talking about the budget in the paper, as it seems that they do every other <laughs> yeah, film no. nowadays, particularly a James right. Cameron film. But it is, but I mean, it does make you appreciate, especially when you look at De Palma or filmmakers of that period, and knowing what they had to work with, knowing that they'd be facing the establishment. And of course, I'm sure that that's a far less bigger headache than today, particularly with a film like yeah, this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was clearly a, a lower budget film. It was made for American International Pictures, probably. Well, I, I actually say, you know, I see the posters for it. It seems like this movie did catch fire. And, and the-, the name De Palma, even though back then it probably seemed like a uh, the low budget um, schlock substitute for Hitchcock. Now it's attained a sense of gravitas that merits comparison to Hitchcock himself. Even though he, they were trying for it in a day, but now it seems, despite all his peaks and valleys, that the respect he sought, and I guess it's inevitable that the name Hitchcock will forever be linked with the Palma. But you have the impression that you know this was not this was not a hack. This was a guy who, even though I'm sure some people might have thought he was a hack, the efforts of the time really are groundbreaking. I feel oh, I, I think so. I mean, I, I feel like yeah, this is definitely a, a, like I said at the beginning, a film that launched him into sort of a, a new level of of respect and uh, recognition that he was he was a guy who was seriously deeply into film and uh had had a lot to offer and and i think you know all in all you have to say he's had a a successful career in terms of you know being able to continue to produce films i think he's maybe even he helped get sean connery an oscar well well, yeah yeah exactly so i mean you know he he accomplished what he set out to do and uh you know i think you know he he created a film that's definitely Earned its following and held its attention. Yeah, and 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 one more thing. Even though Kathy Bates was ultimately the very first uh, actor in a Stephen King adaptation to win an Oscar, you can't overlook Sissy Spacek. Oh, Again, this yeah. is not sisters, but that she, her getting an Oscar nomination 
for Carrie along with Piper Laurie. Well, and especially for a role that was as, as so intense um, and, and so definitely set Sissy Spacek on, on her own trajectory to accomplishing some pretty important and magnificent things. So, all right, well, Robert, it is time for us to wrap it up. So I do appreciate so much the fact that we've finally been able to get it together. We've been You're very welcome, talking Dave. and planning and doing this, uh, you know. Looking forward to happening again. For sure. Well, we, we are connected now, and I've got the spreadsheet, and I will definitely have you back somewhere down the road. So thanks again for your time and your observations tonight. I really appreciate your passion for De Palma and for film, and look forward to talking to you again. Thanks again, Dave. I am back with a longtime friend and colleague here on the podcast, Richard Doyle. Richard, it's good to be talking to you once again. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yes, it has been a while. Uh, kind of already talked about that a little bit uh, since I've done one of these episodes. Eight Hours Don't Make a Day was the last one. Just did a little segment earlier this evening with uh, Robert Baum, and now here I am with a a much more familiar voice and somebody I always enjoy talking uh, talking movies with, especially when you get into this genre stuff, which is definitely the case with Sisters, Brian De Palma's 1972 film. So, Richard, I'm going to go ahead and let you just kind of give us uh, kind of your opening thoughts on, maybe let's just talk about De Palma first, and then we'll uh, dive into this particular movie, which is kind of a big breakout in his career. He'd done other things before that, but uh, just kind of give me your, your basic take on Brian De Palma. Uh, I'm a fan. Of, I'm a big fan of De Palma's. I uh, sort of he was. I kind of grew up with his prime period. You know, um, the thrillers he was doing from in the '80s and the late '70s, and uh, really kind of a fan of the some of the more mainstream stuff he managed to do in the '80s, like The Untouchables. And um, I'm also a pretty big fan of the stuff he did prior to Sisters, which mm-hmm. I mean, this is sort of the big transitional film for him. I like the the sort of strange underground comedies he made in the '60s with people like De Niro and uh, mm-hmm. both like William Finley and Jennifer Salt that you see in this one. Yep. And um, during the period where he was sort of calling himself the American Godard, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen any of those films, but that in itself does intrigue me. Yeah, you know, just that he's kind of taking this meandering path to finding his his calling or his voice as a filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. And this is sort of a, this film's like a big shift in his career, partly Mm -hmm. because the film right before it had been kind of disastrous for him. The get to know your rabbit Mm -hmm. with Tommy Smothers, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was his first studio film, like for Warner brothers and they hated what he was doing and took it away from him. So, so this film kind of marks an abandonment of the kind of comedic, takes that he'd been doing before this and, and sort of the like really solidifies his sort of thriller persona the sort of hitchcock acolyte that he would be for most of the 70s and part mm-hmm. of the 80s now i would say you know without having seen those earlier films the film really opens up like one of those offbeat 
yes. know, satirical comedies, the, the Peeping Tom game show set up, kind of poking fun at middle America, TV watchers, and just kind of the, the prudish, voyeuristic uh, values, especially you know, you've got a little interracial uh, thing going on here, too, with this, you know, he's a, he's a you know pretty clean-cut black guy, but a very attractive young white woman. I mean, that's... You know, 1972, that was still definitely raising eyebrows or, you know, scandalous or, you know, improper in the eyes of, of many mainstream viewers. So he's kind of playing with that, even though he doesn't really call attention to it overtly, I guess, other than the African room as the as the prize for the, the black contestant uh, for his participation in this show. Yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting about this film is it's kind of a bridge in that way, because he mm-hmm. did do a lot of satirical comedy about racism in yeah the films he did before this like hi mom which is the second one he does with de niro it's kind mm-hmm. of a sequel to greetings has a huge uh, satirical uh, sort of performed play in it that people attend called be black baby that's sort of a confrontational black power play okay where, the, yeah. where he puts the audience through this experience kind of making them into black people and treating them the way black mm. people are treated. Okay, yeah. Right, yeah. so he has this subject matter in previous films, but in this one, it, this sort of cold opening where he does a sort of little joke, like, you know, leads you to think the film's one thing and it turns into something else is something he will do repeatedly after this. Sure, sure. Yeah, this this kind of gave me a little bit of that groove tube vibe or even yeah. uh, the Robert Downey uh, uh, senior stuff, you know, where he would just kind of, you know, he was kind of poking fun at the prejudices and biases of many in his own audience, all, all, as well as the kind of more progressive types who could kind of laugh because they're in on the joke and they're, they're sort of above all that. So, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So, kind of tell me a little bit about Sisters then. So, we get into more focused uh, attention to this particular film. We've got Margot Kidder, who, again, I guess she had been in some other films. Um, and, you know, had kind of started establishing herself, but, uh, she was, you know, you know, years away from becoming Lois Lane and, and, uh, some of the other more prominent roles that she, she got as she kind of built her career in the 1970s here. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit more about how you see the film kind of evolving out of De Palma's earlier career and, and kind of where he, where he took this particular genre exercise. Well, one of the things is uh, he'd worked a lot with Jennifer Salt and William Finley before this. They were okay. they were close friends, and apparently Margot Kidder was a roommate of Jennifer Salt's, and that's okay. part of how she ended up. Like this is the first time they'd worked together. Mm-hmm. This is the, I'd say this is the first film where he really does this sort of sly Hitchcock homage. In this mm-hmm. case, you could say mostly Rear Window in this one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, literally uh, across yeah. the way, viewing in. She sees a murder. Nobody believes her. It kind of drives her crazy as she's going on this crusade to not only find out who did it, but to let the authorities take her seriously, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's very well known for for using split screens and i think the split mm-hmm. screen sequence in this one the 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 aftermath of the murder where you see yeah. the two sides yeah in opposite split screens is one of the more sort of virtuosic kind of uh split screen things he's done and he'd really done that once before this he made okay. one of his 60s films is uh dionysus in 69 which is really <laughs> okay. a filmed play yeah it, okay. was, it was a, an off-Broadway sort of 
avant-garde play, but it involved a large amount of interaction between the players and the audience. So he shot the whole film in split screen, showing you the play in one side and the audience in the other. Like the oh, wow. Like the entire film is just those two screens kind of running side by side like that? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So okay. he'd already played with it a bit, but after... Mm-hmm after this like at least until the early 80s he uses this technique a lot he might mm-hmm. even use it in body double again into the 80s but mm-hmm. um yeah robert and i were talking about it I, to me it was a very impressive uh bravura gesture i mean you know it was a, technically impressive but also pretty critical to the story uh, and and kind of getting you into this you know this idea that yeah something terrible has happened but because of reasons uh, of, of again bias and and kind of uh, dismissive attitudes from the cops towards this woman this muckraking reporter <laughs> from staten island you know a little little inside joke there as well um you know it's just kind of infuriating uh and and then there's also kind of the, the rope uh homage where the body is like right there but it's kind yeah. of hidden and nobody's quite picking up on it but but back to the split screen you know just the timing and the execution and seeing all those events i mean i've rewatched that sequence a few times now and it's like really pretty impressive how it all falls together and had to be uh, you know a, a a pretty challenging task to get everything timed just right and to, to you know to have it all mapped out choreographed but then pulled off by everybody involved i think pretty impressively yeah 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 one of the things i really i really have always liked about him is he is sort of a mar- marvelous technical filmmaker mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people sort of well i mean he was dismissed almost starting in this period into the 80s by a lot of critics for being like too much of a Hitchcock copier, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. But I mean, one, he's, it's a, a really technically brilliant filmmaker. Like mm-hmm. even this one, which is fairly low budget and looks like a low budget early 70s horror film, mm-hmm. not, not as glossy as some of his later stuff, has a series of, you know, like meticulously crafted sequences yeah again he, he you can tell he really enjoys kind of investing himself into these technically challenging pieces um uh, that that do serve a purpose and and I, I i will say i've already kind of alluded in my previous segment that i haven't really ever become a de palma fan i think some of those criticisms did create a little bit of a barrier for me where i saw some of the derisive you know oh he's just a copycat or he's just kind of you know playing with these these formulas or clichés and also i mean if I'm just watching movies on my own with my wife, you know, this isn't the kind of movies that she's drawn to. And so it hasn't really been kind of my focal point, especially when there's, you know, all the great kind of art cinema that's out there that I, that I be kind of more naturally drawn to at this stage of life. And as, as again, I'm recapping things I've already said, but you know, watching this at home on Blu-ray by yourself for the first time, it's like, eh, okay, well, that was interesting. But seeing this in a theater, seeing this maybe in a more lively atmosphere uh, with people who can appreciate and get into it, I could see where this film would have a pretty powerful effect, you know, and 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 really kind of you know pull people in with with laughs, with some genuine shock. I mean, there are definitely 
things that you don't see coming, you know, especially for your first time through. And especially for, you know, the early 1970s, even though, you know, as you and I have talked about many times, some of those taboos were definitely gone by the wayside. Uh, we've talked about some, you know, Last House on the Left and others where, you know, the the, the, the horror and the, the graphic uh, extremity is, is, is pretty, you know, pretty visceral here. Uh, <clears throat> this, this film definitely throws some twists and turns at the audience and, and just, you know, moments of incredible weirdness and, and oddity uh, but it's also done in a way that you can laugh at it whether it's nervous laughter or just perverse wit of it all i think those are the the things that have have made this film really grow on me and has actually you know, created more of a curiosity to check out more of de palma's work with a critical eye I've, I've seen a lot of de palma films over the years but it's just been more incidental like i've just gone to see the movie itself without thinking okay this is de palma's vision or or his artistry or or his uh, exploration of different genre types you know so that's that's been kind of my my take on De Palma you know, I, I'd say probably been a little bit unfairly dismissive of his efforts and now I'm curious to see what I've been missing out on yeah I I, I think it like this is the mode in which I think he's most successful um, mm-hmm. it's true that he's a little bit like I mean more than a little bit derivative of Hitchcock at times, but I think yeah. he does play with that to a large degree. I mean, partly just not content to just do a copy of rear window, but you know, to include elements of rear window. I mean, I'd add voyeurism has always mm-hmm. been mm-hmm. like an obsession of his, like, so that's a recurring theme in his film. So the rear window part is, yeah, but also to, I think in this one indirectly, reference psycho by leading you down a full path and then killing off the main characters <laughs> yeah. right? mm-hmm, which he mm-hmm. does again in like dress to kill like 10 years later and mm-hmm. uh but i also think he's like sort of sort of provocative and sort of humorous at the same time if you know what i mean yeah like, right like it's, he, it's that, he pushes, that balance right yeah he pushes the edge of, of things quite a bit but it's always in a sort of playful way which has been I think one of the things that sort of holds him back with a lot of mainstream audiences, he's a little too edgy, you know, at times. Yeah. Yeah. Cause but, he's, he's, he's kind of freaking you out, but he's kind of winking and smiling at the same time. Right. Yeah. That's a bit much for some people to absorb. Right. Yeah. I think the, the, the sort of hard to say exactly what it is, the sort of dream sequence slash hypnosis ending mm-hmm. of this one that sort of gives the whole backstory is a really strange and a little sequence that yeah 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 that part there i think like uh, the first time it's like okay that's just kind of going down kind of loony lane here but then i watched it i was like wow there's a lot of interesting stuff i mean he's he's doing kind of newsreels he's got the tv show that we've already talked about uh, you know the the kind of the freak show aspect, and then just kind of that weird hallucinatory dream sequence. Uh, the visit to the uh, kind of the insane asylum there, and the the odd patients that he that uh, that that uh, she runs into Jennifer Salt as she's trying to get to the bottom of this story. I mean, there's a lot of very just interesting little vignettes and different types of filmmaking technique that uh you know De Palma probably could have just gone straight for the shock without throwing as much creativity and different you know styles into the mix if he, if he just wanted to do something that was going to make your hair stand up or kind of just get you 
shook up and disturbed. He, he could have definitely done that, but it feels like there's there's other stuff happening as well, and it, it's born out of his love for filmmaking, his respect and desire to sort of maybe even challenge himself. You know, he's kind of seen different things that have happened in, in older films or maybe even films that were you know being made around the same time. He's like, well, let me let me try my hand at that. And I think that's probably stuff that has kind of propelled him throughout some of the, the less successful films that he's made over the years because he's never, I mean, you know, you can say he he's, you know, derivative of Hitchcock, but he's made a lot of films that really have nothing to do with Hitchcock and the Hitchcock legacy. And he could have just stayed in that lane and perhaps had a more consistent and successful career, you know, just doing his version of that with, uh, with the old master himself departing the scene in the mid seventies. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's had a really, he's one of the least lucky of his sort of like generation <laughs> of sort of film yeah. school auteurs. Like he's had successes, you know, you can point to the Carrie and the untouchables and, mm-hmm. Scarface. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, Scarface. And and to some extent, Carlito's way, but he always seems to not land the follow up and (laughs) throw himself back down again. Yeah. Well, in fact, I I was reading up uh, doing some kind of those career retrospectives. I mean, even though he's still alive, he's in his early 80s now. So, but I, I don't think he's like retired or officially done, but I think he got himself kind of kicked out of Hollywood. So he's had to go to Europe to get financing to make some of his later films and you know, maybe it sounds like there may be some other project that's still in the work so you know him and scorsese are still out there doing it i mean maybe scorsese's had a much more consistent and a high-end career but they kind of came from the same scene and and hung out in that same clique with spielberg and lucas and coppola and that that whole kind of you know the the higher commercial end of the new hollywood scene yeah one of the one of the advantages of getting older is I've seen him, his reputation turn around, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a few times. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly, like I, yeah. he was like, so disregarded at certain points. I wasn't sure whether I liked him anymore, you know? and, but <laughs> yeah. I've noticed that from everything from criterion releasing quite a few of his films to, you know, young, younger folks, uh, seeming to appreciate him quite a bit. And, um, Noel Baumbach of all people doing a documentary on him. Yeah, yeah. Robert mentioned that. I haven't seen it yet. But on that same idea of younger people, um, I'm I'm pretty active with my local film society, Grand Rapids Film Society, and De Palma came up as just an object of conversation. I guess Criterion's been doing this uh, erotic thrillers package on their channel. And so like Body Double, of course, Dress to Kill, and... um, blowout are the two that other two besides sisters that criterions put out on disc but yeah they, they've definitely included him in that and and you know some of the people uh, who are mostly people in their early 20s or into their early to mid 30s they're all talking about DePaul like oh i got to see more of his stuff like they're they're pretty curious to or they've seen carrie and they've really bonded with that film it's like oh very fascinating to sort of see a, a younger generation that's kind of drawn to find out more of what makes this guy tick yeah, I've noticed people praising Body Double out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, yep. Out of that bundle, and I can't think of a more reviled film of his when it first came out. <laughs> so that's really refreshing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, it's like what goes around comes around. You know, I mean, sometimes it's just the the film is made decades ahead of its moment. You know, before the rest of the the audience can really catch up to what the visionary was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, let's talk a little bit more about sisters here. So we, we've, we've kind of gotten into some of the, the setup here. It's a, it's a pretty odd story when you really think about it. I mean, you kind of get drawn in. Um, you know, this, uh, this woman, Margot Kidder, she's this Quebecois, uh, woman who's, you know, come into New York to try to, you know, establish herself as a, as a, as a model, as an actor. Um, and Margot Kidder herself is Canadian by birth. Is that correct? I think. I yes. Read that yeah, somewhere. I think so. yeah. From Ontario, um, not, yeah. not Quebec, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but what are your thoughts about Margot Kidder? I mean, again, Robert and I talked a little bit about her career and her sort of subsequent uh, fame as Lois Lane in the Superman franchise and some other films. But uh, what do you think of her performance in this one? I have to confess to not being a big Margot Kidder fan. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I like her. This is one of the performances of hers I really do like. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish she wasn't playing French Canadian because yeah. the accent's <laughs> that- a little much. Yeah, I didn't know she was Canadian at all. But when I first watched, it, I was like, "That's that doesn't seem very convincing to me." In fact, I almost wondered if it was a false identity that she was adopting within the story because yeah, yeah. the accent just sounded so so forced and so flimsy. It's like, okay, there's something else going on with her, and there obviously was, but it had nothing to do with her Canadianness. <laughs> but I definitely, I'd say this one in the Canadian horror film she does a couple of years after this, Black Christmas or two, where I do quite appreciate mm-hmm. her. Um, mm-hmm. um, she doesn't get to do a ton of the two people performance in this, but I think she's quite right. convincing as somebody who changes to another person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I I made that comment. She, she, you know, because because Robert was talking about some of her later in life mental health struggles yeah. and and some of you know kind of a sad ending to to be honest there of 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 her life and where things wound up for her, but I don't know that she had that reputation or that th- those struggles were were so prominent in her. You know, and kind of in, in the people who knew her, I don't know if she'd had any kind of big blow ups, but she definitely did give the impression of somebody who could really kind of, you know, uh, disassociate. Um, that seemed pretty convincing when she went into that mode. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it does feel like a lot of the movie really hinges on on her uh, her ability to sell that, and then the the guy uh, you mentioned his name it, it escapes me at the moment. Oh, Bill Finley. Yeah, uh, he he's another pretty big part of the the oddness of the film. I mean, his presence, yeah. his kind of you know his his kind of pale and and just weird demeanor is is kind of big in setting the atmosphere and and cluing in viewers pretty early on that there's something pretty sinister and, and creepy going on here even before you know exactly what it's about i i'm a i'm a fairly big fan of his he, okay he goes way back with De Palma. he's in De Palma's very first film and, right and so he, these are like friends who just yeah. kind of came up in their mutual uh careers together yeah and he was actually in the play that De Palma filled Dion- mm-hmm. dionysus oh, in 69 okay. right and uh he, he goes on with De Palma a few times he's in his next He's the star of his next film, Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it's, and I've seen that, but it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, I, I, and was Finley? I mean, was he typecast in some way? Was he always this type yeah. of a character? Did yeah. He, okay. He was. He, yeah. Because uh, it feels like he's got that kind of look, and it's hard for me to see 
that he's going to expand his range a whole lot, but he's very good at what he does here. Yes, he's a very big actor too. He's he's extremely big in Phantom of the Paradise, and so he, yep. he's cast a few times. Like Toby Hooper cast him in his follow up to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure, okay, as, as a very big <laughs> character. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll, I'll give you an interesting note. Phantom of the Paradise was a complete like commercial failure in almost sure. everywhere in the world except yep. in Winnipeg. Okay. It apparently yeah. played theaters here for years. Well, I think I saw it as a midnight movie in the Bay Area um, back in the late 70s. I think it had that a little bit sense. of a reputation there. You know, it was the Rocky Horror scene and anything that was just kind of freaky and weird with some music and, you know, just unpredictable, strange stuff that, you know, just pop it in and the kids will show up. And that was pretty much. But I don't have a lot of clear memories of 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 the, of the viewing itself it was just more the scene that i was a part of and that happened to be on the screen one night it's it's an interesting sort of pattern i think De Palma in this period sort of tries to do a little bit of one for himself and one for like mm-hmm. the like the audience and that one feels a bit like one for himself even if with you know casting of paul williams and people yeah in it yeah but, uh, well but, i think that film has kind of created its own not a huge cult following, but it, it's definitely got yeah. its champions out there now. Yeah, you can count me as one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. So, so yeah, so we have the story that unfolds. We've got this this kind of, you know, pretty tragic end for the, the young man who uh, made, was it Dominique? So Dominique is, is the one who survives. Danielle is the one who, is that, do I get that right? I think so, um, yeah. Okay, yeah, so, uh, yeah, but, you know, but there's some weird stuff. Like, there's a scene, that I, I noticed it in my rewatch the other day, when when Dominique goes into the room after she's brought mm-hmm. the guy back, you see two shadows on the door. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, some dialogue going on there. So it's like, okay, so... It did the sister. I mean, I don't know. It's is is it like a an inconsistency or is it just kind of messing with with our head? You know, because I think my understanding is that the Siamese twin died. She like she yes. no longer is physically with them, right? So yeah, what's your take on the double? I uh, think he's trying to string us along a little bit. Yeah, right? okay, right. That's right. the only thing I think is a complete <laughs> cheat. That I agree. Yeah. You can. It really does seem like there are two people in that scene. Yeah, like the voices you can. I imagine she's talking to herself. Yeah, you but, you see that effect yeah. where it's a person and kind of changing voices and having self dialogue. Right, right, right. But there's also the line from William Finley when he shows up and she mentions like dumb Danielle and, and he says Danielle's here and it's like well I mean that doesn't yeah. seem like what he would say <laughs> right right because he's he's not living this hallucination he he yeah. knows better so that is yeah it does feel like it's a little bit of a, a a misdirection there that is never really accounted for but again you know who cares about that yeah. stuff? <laughs> Um, but then let's talk about Jennifer Salt. She was another pretty big piece of this film and definitely, you know, takes it on a, on a different level. Um, some social commentary about, uh, a young woman reporter struggling to be taken seriously. She's gotten herself in some hot water with the cops because she's written some, you given them some uh, critical press coverage in the local Staten Island papers there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting little foray. You, you know, are you a, would you say a fan of Jennifer Salt? Cause I, I really had no idea 
maybe I've seen her on other stuff, but she did not register with me as a as a personality or as an actress of uh, you know of, of of great significance. And I thought she was credible in this role, but it didn't really like impress me. It's like, oh, I wonder what else she's done. But you know, tell me about that. She's also a longtime friend of his because she's yeah. in a mm-hmm. lot of yeah. his earlier films too. Yeah, and I, I I definitely picked that up from the uh, the bonus features where there's an interview with her that I think was new to the Blu-ray reissue from the original DVD, which was right. pretty early spine number, spine eighty nine. So that's definitely going way back with Criterion. Like they they probably could have get the rights to this film pretty cheap, yeah. <laughs> and and that was when De Palma was probably in fashion. So this was an opportunity for them to you know kind of cash in a little bit there. But I did enjoy her her contributions to the disc and the memories i definitely got a sense of these are just a bunch of young creative people out there you know having a good time making movies kind of pursuing their dreams and that's a pretty that's a pretty winsome little you know i don't know scenario to sketch out there kind of definitely won my sympathy and admiration for for these folks who are just out there doing it you know the story I've heard is that, uh, like, because as, as I mentioned, like her and Margot Kidder were roommates and and friends with De Palma, that there was a Christmas celebration and he gave them both presents, and inside mm-hmm. the presents were the script for this film, because hmm. he okay. had sort of written this with the intention of Salt and Kidder playing the two parts. Okay, so he had them in mind for the different characters that they portrayed, which is, that's another cool thing. I, I, yeah. You know, again, going back to my recent involvement with the Film Society, there's a lot of young local filmmakers and people who maybe they want to direct, maybe want to do lighting, acting, screenwriting, whatever. And I'm just really enjoying getting getting to know some of these folks who, you know, you know, who knows if any of them will ever hit this level, but you just sort of get that sense of camaraderie and, and kind of, throwing your energy into this project and see what happens with it and uh yeah that's that's a kind of a cool thing that de palma had these women in mind as he kind of put this story together it looks like he took elements from you know real life siamese twin yeah uh, accounts and narratives and threw some social satire in there some some playing with the media pop culture and just kind of the conventions of kind of weird disturbing upsetting filmmaking and the hitchcock tributes all of that stuff and made it a pretty lively little concoction yeah and i think he definitely mirrors like jennifer salts like her reporters Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh like marginalizing with the marginalizing of the twins yeah Mm -hmm. right like i think it's very deliberate that jennifer salt is in the position of the dead twin while you get the yeah, you get the whole yeah. unfolding. You know, uh, yep. a, a definite meaning to mirror their their fates in a way. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a, almost a weird little persona type of thing. If I start yeah. thinking about it, or a, you know, prelude to Mulholland Drive or something like that. Um, and then also, you know, the the funny little exchanges between Jennifer Salt's character and and her mom. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just you know, wanting mom wants her just to settle down, get married, and, and you know put this journalism stuff behind her because that's that's never going to land you a husband just going up stirring up trouble for yourself like that so yeah other aspects of the film or or you know 
what else do you have to say about sisters? I feel like I've I've kind of said a lot of my stuff. I don't want to repeat myself too much from uh, you know the the first segment there. But uh, it's a film that with uh, with the investment of more time and and uh, exposure <laughs> uh, has grown on me. What about what about the whole conceit of stuffing the body into that sofa? <laughs> yeah, 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 it feels a little bit. Um, ludicrous or you know implausible that they could actually get away with that but again that's part of the fun of the movie if you will he apparently filmed a whole cut scene with mm-hmm. uh a long extended one take search of the apartment that was always going to focus back on the blood spot on the back of the couch right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and had to cut it because it just wasn't convincing yeah. <laughs> apparently the yeah. blood spot always looked like it was coming out of the arm of the couch and they couldn't quite get it down but apparently the producer felt that the, it was not plausible that you could hide a body in the couch, so he proved it by hiding someone in the couch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the guy had a slim enough build that they could yeah. make it happen. <laughs> but, you know, cleaning the blood smears off the floor, off the window. I know Forensics has made significant advances over the last 50 years, but it's like, yeah, to, to clean up all that evidence, uh, yeah, that's, you know, that, it stretches credibility, let's just say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I um, do, I do really like the double black humor ending on this one too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's get to the conclusion there because I feel like that is another little. I mean, again, the first time it registered with me, it's like, what in the world is yeah. that guy doing up on a telephone pole? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the first sort of dark joke is just Jennifer Salt's repeating of her, like the, the hypnotism oh, yeah. still being in effect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, there was no murder. It was yeah. all a terrible mistake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> But I always take the black, the sort of dark joke at the end there is that Durning's like sitting and watching this couch that no one's ever going to come for. Yeah, right. He's <laughs> he's all staked out there, and nothing's going to be happening. And there's yeah. a, there's a cow standing next to it as well. Just like the most ludicrous little, you know, absurdity as, as that's your final image, which. I guess you got to finish it up somehow, so why not just do something a little, you know, throw another, another curveball at you there. <laughs> it's one thing that extends throughout his career. He's got a very black sense of humor. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Do you and, and, have you have you seen Blowout? Like, I, I have, yeah. But again, just kind of more of a cursory viewing. But yeah, go ahead. It ends on a it ends on an extremely dark joke wait, wait, mm-hmm. of of. Uh, well, spoilers for blowout anyone okay sure that um the nancy allen has been murdered and and at the beginning john travolta is trying to find a good scream for the horror movie he's doing sound for and he uses right, right. he uses her death scream that he had on on tape okay for the scream in the movie and the producers like thumbs up to him that's a great scream right <laughs> and it just sort of cuts to him sitting there smoking a cigarette going yeah yeah that's a great scream and it sort of cuts to the credits. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a pattern of his, you know, the, mm-hmm. and end on the on end on a really dark joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something that just kind of grounds it in this kind of, you know, what the hell kind of <laughs> exit there as as we uh, wrap up our night of uh, theatrical entertainment. All right. Well, anything else you want to talk about as far as De Palma's subsequent moves, or maybe we've covered a lot of that already. Um, yeah, I feel like maybe those are the, the pieces I that stick in my mind. I don't know if there's anything else that uh, uh, we want to jump into before we wrap it up. No, I, I just say this is like, although this one is very much sort of visually like a 
like a cheap horror film of the period. And I think was mm-hmm. like distributed by AIP who mm-hmm. are like one of the major distributors of horror in this period. It sort of sets the model for a lot of what he does in the next 15 years. You know, yeah. all of the elements are there just in the sort of infant, infant stage. Do you feel like De Palma has had his own share of imitators or people who've kind of lifted what he did and have built on it from there? Would you say he's like an influential type of director or is he really going to be seen as more of a, you know, maybe a guy who just paid tribute, made some great films based on his, like say the dark humor, the technical, you know, focus and concentration and just that, that ability um, I don't know. I'm just trying to, you know, assess where are we at with uh, De Palma's impact beyond, uh, you know, what he achieved on his own terms or for his own, you know, you know, personal fortune and all of that. It's it's sort of hard to say. I mean, I think one of his issues had been that he didn't, you know, his major successes are with films that are difficult to credit him with like a like it, it they're not like his biggest successes aren't really his style mm-hmm. except to the extent that he has sort of a big melodramatic style so i'd say you know scarface and untouchables are both right like big melodrama and, and to some extent kind of classic hollywood in ways right right but but this this style that you know is most distinctively his was never a huge commercial success outside of say yeah. carry and to some degree dress to kill. You you could say they're kind of alienating films for for are. mass audiences, right? I mean, you you can go there for the thrills and the shock and whatnot, but but it's it's that kind of twisted dark humor that is like a little bit too much for a lot of folks. Yeah, I mean, you can say. I mean, it's interesting that they put him in an erotic thriller bundle because you can say, in a sense. He's one of the founders of that stream of yeah. filmmaking that really flourishes in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But there are proximate influences that are probably bigger, like Basic Instinct. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's hard to say how to what degree De Palma was a huge influence on those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's partly part of the problem might be that he hasn't been really appreciated in this mode until right. fairly recently except among niche you know a niche audience. yeah right people who like him because of you know the connections uh you know to to the new hollywood and they've just kind of tracked his career kind of like you had said earlier you kind of grew up and have, have kind of paralleled or watched him as he's you know gone through the different phases and, and changes of his career uh but maybe not known as like an innovator he's he's not somebody who marked out new territory or at least his reputation is that he's been more derivative um throwing some some twists maybe going to places that hitchcock couldn't because of you know censorship or just kind of studio imposed limitations and things of that sort um yeah there are also some weird complications Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. you you often encounter I'll, i'll add i'm a little skeptical of this uh angle that people take sometimes but you'll find that De Palma is one of these people that people talk about as making like American giallos Mm, mm -hmm. yeah I saw that in some of the reviews right which makes sense given the time period in which he works except I don't think there's really any evidence that he saw 
any of the films that people credit him with being influenced hmm. by, right? Yeah, yeah. He's he wasn't trying to bring some of that European or Italian flavor into his filmmaking. Maybe there were just some thematic elements of beautiful people getting hacked up and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that people like Argento and him were, were doing the same thing at the same time, like mm-hmm. for different reasons. But one of the right. things that that complicates is, you know, are certain people influenced by Argento or are they influenced by De Palma? Because they're doing yeah. similar things at the same time. So there mm-hmm. are movies in the late 70s like The Eyes of Laura Mars that feel influenced by what he was doing but it's hard to say if he's the influence or or argento's the influence or even films like clute that are somewhat similar to de palma yeah i i don't know that he was ever big enough to be a big influence is what i'm what i would say (laughs) right right He, he his films had you know mixed success commercially yeah um there was a there was a a group of filmmakers who followed him but but not to the point where um it it spills over into saying i'm going to be a filmmaker in the de palma vein or tradition or something like that so well you know but i think you know as i as i said in the previous segment you know he you have to say he's had a pretty impactful significant career just in terms of you know making movies that uh have been and i i think will continue to be talked about for a long time and i think you know if you're setting out to be a movie director and you wind up in that territory you can say yeah i've I've had a pretty successful run of it there yeah yeah for sure all right well you know so that's basically my takeaway is that yeah my my uh very underinformed and i would even say naive uh appraisal of de palma uh prior to you know digging in and finally getting around to recording a podcast about sisters um uh has has paid off in terms of my you know uh intrigue and curiosity to to go further into the stuff that i have sitting on my shelf maybe give blowout another watch because like i can say it was kind of a cursory viewing i think i was just kind of watching it because I'd heard good things, but it was maybe in one of those nights where I wasn't really focused in as much. And I mean, again, I could see the impressive aspects of it, but I didn't really you know, bond deeply with that film. And, and again, it may be that De Palma is never going to be right up on my top shelf, but I think, uh, I think he deserves a little bit more respect and regard than what I've given him previously. So appreciate your time tonight, Richard has been good uh, getting back into the saddle here. Uh, hopefully it won't take me another two months to get one of these episodes going. In fact, I wanted to chat with you about it, and maybe we can plan our next episode. Uh, we talked a little bit about doing a Hanzo the Razor, yeah. which is a Criterion Channel exclusive, but uh, you and David Seeley and I, I think, had talked about maybe just covering the whole trilogy as our next episode. Or, uh, we hadn't talked about it as the next episode, but I'm kind of pitching that idea right here, <laughs> right as we're recording. Uh, how's that sound to you? Sounds good to me. Uh have to get david in <laughs> yeah well yeah we'll we'll get him in the mix here so yeah. that might be the next one or the other one i think is uh don't play us cheap from the uh the melvin oh. van peebles box set which uh you know either way i'm gonna have to do some watching because i i want to before i do don't play us cheap i want to take in the earlier stuff that he did uh prior to to that film which i think is that the last one in that set actually 
So yeah, um, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I, I think I'd like to do Hanzo the Razor. I think I'd like to just do the trilogy there. See where that goes. Definitely enjoy talking Japanese, uh, you know, martial arts, uh, sort of a Zadoichi from another dimension type of thing going on there. Have you seen any so, of them? I saw about half of the first one okay. and got the idea. Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. like, okay, yeah, I definitely want to. I want to build up for this and. Uh, probably do all three of them in one mammoth episode kind of like what we did with uh lone wolf and cub there so i think that'll probably be our next episode i'll get on the phone with david and we'll uh we'll set up a time okay sure yeah i'm in all right thanks a lot richard and thank you for listen- listeners for uh hanging in there with me and uh we'll try to get back to you sooner like i've already said so uh for now wrap it up good night good night